0: And now it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf coming to you live from the Gresham Room high above the Coot Street Motel 6 with very special guests John Kessel and Theodore Agasson on the Coot Street
1: Podcast. And it's January of 20,000, 2018, no it's not, um, 2018, well, okay, at any rate, the reason we're doing this podcast on this theme with these guests is that at the First of the year, actually, January 1st, uh, and, and Dora and John, you can correct me if I'm wrong. January 1st was the 200th anniversary of the publication of Frankenstein, was it not? You
2: no, know, I've read elsewhere that the pub date was something like March 10th or 11th, but I don't know. I mean, that could be right. Uh, so
3: I'll defer to John because I, I don't know the month. I know the year, but, but right. I, I have right. kept that careful track.
2: I, I was trying to figure out the, the actual date because I my, wanted my book to come out on that date uh, this year, but uh, uh, I'm close, I think. But I don't know. Maybe that's not true about it being in March.
1: It could be. I mean, the January date sounds unlikely to me, and I don't know where I saw it, but it's been bandied about for years that that was the publication date. So. huh okay. I do really uh, just, just as a parenthesis, which I discovered today, and I've not mentioned this to you, Jonathan. The day we're recording this in the United States is also the 100th birthday of Philip Jose Farmer. Wow. Wow. Just an odd piece of trivia. And, and uh, oh, I don't know. I just uh,
2: was going to talk about how it's also occurred a, co- were a couple of days after the, the death of Ursula Le Guin. And she's been on my mind a great deal the last Mine days. Mine too.
1: Uh, it's, it's hard it's, it, it can't not be on your mind. Um, and um, we, we really ought not to get started on this because there's nothing that you can say enough. Really, no. I've been writing things. I'm sure we've all been writing things, and I keep thinking of more things to write. Um, no, and
2: I, I you know, I've, I've, you know, read a lot of writers in my life, and this is the, the most I've been affected by the death of a writer uh, in my lifetime. I just really feel. I didn't really know her that well. Anyway, I'm sorry. This is not what we're talking about. But anyway... No,
0: no, no, no. It, it, I mean, there's since there's since there's you raised I mean, the you know, I don't know that any of us would be you know, reading, writing, or doing what we're doing without people like Ursula and Ursula above all others in the last almost half century, certainly. I mean, I know that um, she's had a, had a remarkable impact and influence on, on the field. I mean, you're saying you can't remember being impacted by... Uh, and anything like this, you know, John, before, and I, I can only liken it in a, in a different way to how I felt in I think it was 1988 when Heinlein died. It was a, you know like the similar kind of level of, oh God, level of um, chaos going on, or, or you know, up to, of 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 tumult of 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 things shifting in, in 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 the field. Uh, to me, and- uh, uh,
2: actually, the only the only experience I had was the death of. Uh- John Lennon, actually. That's the only other one I can think of that made me feel like this. Anyway, sorry.
0: Yeah. sorry. Yeah. No, no. It's probably worth saying. Sorry, Gary?
1: I was just saying, Adora. I know you've been working yeah. in her archives, and you've been very involved with uh, the details of her work on her life. So uh, I, I know this has been upsetting to you as well.
3: Yeah, I, I wrote something. But um, after that, I sort of – I. I I wrote my piece and then it was only three paragraphs and then it was like, I'd said what I want to say for now. Um, but it was a bit like a punch to the guts. And, um, I, I think that it was, um, I responded, um, not just with grief, which I think all of us feel, but with a kind of anger. Um, and it reminded me of, I think it's the Vincent, uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay poem, um, about april in which she's saying you know i don't accept this i know this is the way things go but i'm not okay with it and i just want you to know that and so i was sort of (laughs) i found myself angry at the cycle of life um Uh which is not a very productive thing to be but yeah it's uh i I think um i feel the way you do in that uh like it's it's almost too close um to, I thought, to uh, yeah. have a dispassionate discussion right now. No, I don't. But I, but I, I don't do think. want to point out, you know, it's, it is it is thematically relevant in a sense that uh, we have Mary Shelley, who's a woman writer whose impact on science fiction is really incalculable. And I think Ursula Le Guin is exactly the same way. She's a woman writer whose impact on the field is absolutely incalculable.
1: A brilliant segue. And as, 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 as I was about to say before, you actually said the same thing is, the, the, one of the most encouraging things about thinking about Ursula Le Guin is that yes we're talking about Mary Shelley 200 years later now yes right and I right. think we Very good
3: what what we need to ensure and this is sort of on us is that we are in fact talking about Ursula Le Guin 200 years from now because it's our responsibility to keep our own history alive and obviously she is going to be an part of an important part of that history but that's part of our responsibility to the genre and to literature Mm -hmm. in general to make sure that certain writers are kept alive.
0: I think what's interesting actually is that it's almost impossible to imagine a chain of events where that wouldn't prove to be the case. She is such a, you know, her, her work is such a fundamental cornerstone to the modern field that it seems impossible, and and in fact to modern letters and to modern literature generally, that you can't imagine her fading from view. Uh, her work has been being laid into the Library of America, all this sort of thing. I mean, I, I, I just can't see it ha- how it could happen.
2: I, I think that as long as people are interested in the kind of writing that we do, then she will be really, she'll be the, the you know, she'll be on Mount Rushmore, okay? There's no question about it to me. Um, so... Uh, you know, I think the question is where she stands in terms of uh, American writers in, in her during her lifetime. I think she's up there. Okay, uh, uh, and I don't I don't think she has anything to give away to any of the uh, other writers that are always praised. Uh, so we'll see.
0: I also think the gift we have is that we had all of her career. It wasn't a career that was cut short. It was a full, full-bodied, complete thing that was done i mean her her death was a gut punch but it wasn't a shock in that sense it's like she had written to the point where she'd almost stopped writing and that body of work stands as a whole
2: and it was good beginning middle and end i mean i just read uh lavinia uh this last Ah. year i had and i was just knocked out by it i thought wow I want to be able to write that well. (laughs) Uh, So I uh, in fact, actually, that actually is a segue here, too, because Lavinia is the kind of book that I think Dora wrote and that I wrote in the sense that it takes uh, existing characters from another work and it reimagines them. Uh, from her own point of view and, and inserts her own characters into the story. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it is a piece of fiction. Uh, only she's choosing the Aeneid rather than uh, Frankenstein or, or uh, mm-hmm. a host of, of uh, 1800s uh, uh, novels.
3: Uh, so. I've been thinking about this. Sorry, just the, the issue, just to go back like halfway through what John was saying, what is it that keeps a writer alive? And I think I have a slightly different perspective, partly because um, I spend a lot of time studying Victorian literature. And I think, you know, what is it that keeps writers who wrote 100 years ago, 200 years ago, alive and, and um, current for us? And part of it is, um, it's not their genius, necessarily. It's not how well they wrote. It's whether the things they wrote about are things that we still think about and we still deal with. And the issues that Mary Shelley wrote about, those are still very much with us. Um, We're still dealing with the things she wrote about in Frankenstein. And the other question is, which which works survive, right? Because we're not necessarily reading all of Shelley's works. Not all of them are being taught in schools. They're being studied by graduate students. But Mm -hmm. the one that we're focused on is Frankenstein. So even in a body of work as large as Le Guin's, Part of the question is what are going to emerge over time as the really important influential works. Um, And I think that that's actually I mean, you can talk about it, but I think it's hard to forecast because in a way it depends on what people 100 years from now are going to find important. And we kind of can't know that. Um, I think about uh, a text like Dracula, which is not necessarily more brilliantly written than any other Victorian text. I think and it's yet, a pretty
2: bad, it's, badly written book myself. Uh,
3: well, you know, well, it, but it's it, the it, one that survived. But it survived right. because of what it's about, not necessarily because it's a wonderful piece of writing.
1: Right. There are the reasons for though, yeah, I, I was Yeah, I was looking into Mary Shelley for some reason uh, and thinking about The Last Man, which was, I guess, her last novel. Horribly reviewed when it came out. It was a complete failure. And it was apparently out of print for 130 years or something. It just never got reprinted until the 60s when scholars rediscovered it. And it's not very good. I mean, it's a it's a three-volume novel. All the good science fiction stuff is in volume three and you have to get there. Um, but the idea, by, by the 60s, the idea of end-of-life, end-of-the-world novels had sort of resurfaced and now there are bits of that novel that are still pretty powerful, even though I don't think I'd recommend the whole thing to anybody without a lot of interest in Portraits of Byron and Shelley, Hmm. and so forth and so on. Right, the whole
2: plague thing doesn't happen until really the very end of the book. So, uh, actually, I I actually have that edition, that 1966 first reprint since 1826 edition. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, it's just a trade paperback, it wasn't anything special, but uh, uh, yeah, it's it's strange how something could get lost for so long.
0: It's probably worth saying yeah. that the yeah. reason we're here is because you both have a pair of books out which are actually, if you like, oddly chronologically linked. You know, John has Pride they and Prometheus, which is, which is just out, you know, I think, in the next few weeks. Uh, Dora uh, February had, 13th. had The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, which came out last year and a sequel coming up, European Travel for the Monstrous Gentlewoman. But they both originate in short stories... The Mad Alchemist Daughter, I think it was from twenty ten, of your you know the Mad Scientist Daughter uh,
3: Daughter. from twenty ten daughter, Daughter.
0: yeah, and your own story, John uh, Pride and Prometheus from twenty oh nine. So these are very contemporaneous works. They obviously have similar kinds of inspiration. I mean. Where did you pick up, so John, to start with you for a second, John, where did you come up with this, I'm going to take Pride and Prejudice, I'm going to take Frankenstein, and yeah. I'm going to bring them together in something a little bit more sophisticated than Pride and Prejudice and Zombies?
2: Um, I, actually got the, I got the idea uh, at the critique table at Sycamore Hill one year where uh, Benjamin Rosenbaum had a a story we were talking about called it was called S- senseless and insensible but I think it got published as sense and sensibility and it was a takedown of of Jane Austen done as if it were written by Salvador Dali it was very strange surreal. you know Benjamin he's strange uh, uh, and and so I just occurred to me as I was about to speak about his story that Shelley and uh, I thought this is a weird thing to crash these things together. And then, but I thought, well, you know, Mary Shelley and Jane Austen were contemporaries and, uh, but no one ever talks about those those books together. And that's, I just wrote that down on a piece of paper while a lot of people were talking. And then uh, it took a while before I wrote it, but I wrote it. Uh, It came out before the Pride and Prejudice and Zombies thing. I felt sort of sandbagged by that actually uh, and and so you know once I got into it it really uh, grew grew from that uh, and then when I discovered that Victor Frankenstein in Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein goes to the town of Matlock in Derbyshire and wow. that uh, Darcy's estate Pemberley is 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 next to near Matlock in Derbyshire that really like said okay I have to write this now um, because. It just seems like I, you know, it just seemed like it had to be done.
1: Dora,
3: it's funny. Um, this this notion of simultaneity um, also played into my book in various ways. So, so I think it's interesting that what um, John was realizing that was that things happened at the same time that we don't really pay attention to. Um, so, there were a couple of things. One was um, I had done a doctoral dissertation on uh, late Victorian Gothic fiction, meaning the monster texts. And I was noticing that uh, right between, let's say, um, 1870 and 1910, we have a real cluster of famous monsters. So we have Carmilla the vampire, and we have the great God Pan, we have Dracula, we have uh, Island of Dr. Murrow, we have Jekyll and Hyde. There's one I didn't mention uh did i say dracula i don't remember you did
1: yeah
3: okay uh so but we have this real cluster of late victorian gothic fiction that is monster fiction and it's mad scientist fiction um and the other thing i noticed the second thing i noticed was that there were an awful lot of female monsters there was this real obsession at the time with Women being monstrous, this was the era of the new woman, of the suffragette movement. There was a fear that women were moving out of their proper sphere, which was the household. Um, And uh, there was a fear of the femme fatale, as well as a kind of glorification of the femme fatale. And all of these female monsters died um, at some point in the text. And, And I was teaching Frankenstein at one point, and there was a particular passage that really bugged me. And John knows exactly the one. It's uh, Uh the one where Victor takes apart the female monster he's creating. He puts her body parts in a basket and he throws them into the ocean. Like he doesn't want to be found with these parts of a dead woman, which I suppose makes sense. Nevertheless, it seems a fairly callous thing to do. And I thought, well, hang on. How come all of these mad scientists get to kill off their female monsters I don't like this, and uh, so I brought them to life again. The other thing that went into the book was a different kind of simultaneity, which is that I was looking at a map, and I noticed that the places where um, Dr. Jekyll and Hyde happens, where that novelist sat, is essentially across Regent's Park from Baker Street. Hmm. And I thought, you know what? Oh. At, the, at the time that Sir Danvers Carew would have been killed in that novel um, Sherlock Holmes would have been living there and he would have heard about the
2: murder. That's great. No, that's, that's the kind of thing that really sparks a a story. It seems to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I think your book is marvelous. The way it stitches together all these other things you get, uh, you forgot Rappacini's daughter, which is a great story. Uh, although that's a little earlier, that's pre-Victorian there with, uh, and Nathaniel Hawthorne's an American, but still, uh, uh, it's a, it's a. Uh, there's another, uh, a, you know, beautiful, sexually attractive woman who is poisonous and in the end dies. So I don't know what that's about.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and,
3: and and I had to include her right because um, Rappaccini has this wonderful or horrible, either one, uh, speech where she's saying, "Look at what you've done, Father. You have made me poisonous. I can't even, um, you know, go out with my boyfriend Giovanni." Without making him poisonous and killing people. Um, and he says, No, daughter, look, I have made you so strong. Look, you are stronger than ordinary women. Isn't this great? And I'm like, Wait, is Rappuccini a feminist?
1: So, uh, well, what's Central interesting writer, in that story? I
3: had to bring her in.
2: I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, I just say that uh, one of the things I think it's cool about the end of that story is that it's not the father who kills her, it's her boyfriend who kills her. Okay. Uh, 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 Without her knowing, it he's you know uh, he's trying to cure. Well, he thinks he's going to cure her, but he's basically being a pawn for her father's greatest scientific rival, who basically wants to do him ill. So um, um, you know, the boyfriend is, I think, very culpable in that story.
3: Yeah. So I, you know, I changed it. I didn't like that ending, so I made my own
2: ending. <laughs> I, was, I was figuring that that because, you know, there she is in 1895. And I think, okay, so this is – she obviously didn't uh, didn't play out the way it did in the story, which is, which I,
3: is cool. And I had to – you know, I, I fudged the timelines a little bit, but I'm the author. I figure I'm allowed to do that.
1: Well, both of, you, both of you had to fudge timelines yeah. a little bit. I mean, right. You right. Had, you, you, John, you had to move Frankenstein up a few, few years. Uh, and 20 years, yeah. 20 years or so. And, and 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 that seems to me part of the game. And just as a, a parenthesis here, because he was a friend of mine and because it's Centennial, uh, I don't know if you're aware that Philip Jose Farmer in one of his biographies of Tarzan had their ancestry actually being Elizabeth, had Elizabeth Bennett and Darcy actually gave birth to the entire generation of superheroes from <laughs> Sherlock Holmes to James <laughs> Bond because oh they're because they were irradiated by a a, a meteorite that actually hit in Wold Newton, I think, in 1795 in England. And so he had this whole mythology where all of modern popular culture heroes come from that one event that stems essentially from Pride and Prejudice.
3: Which is interesting because we... Jane Austen is not science fiction and fantasy, and yet there is a, a, a way in which... Every science fiction and fantasy writer I've ever met has read Jane Austen, is familiar with Austen, mm-hmm. uh, it somehow refers to Austen, and, and I don't know why that is. I mean, I wrote a Jane Austen time travel novel, uh, not novel, sorry, a short story at one point, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I'm sure all of us have done panels at conventions about writers that science fiction fantasy, non-genre writers that science fiction and fantasy writers seem to... Um, congregate to i guess uh and and Austin is one of them you have uh, karen Joy Fowler's book for example
2: absolutely right yeah. right um yeah i think that there there's certainly similarities in the fandoms of them both it seems to me uh you know there's a very organized Jane Austen uh fan community uh and from you know basically just pure enjoyment to serious scholarly attention, you know? And so that to me is very similar to science fiction and fantasy fandom.
1: One of the things I'm curious about, uh, is I was trying to think, uh, if there's a name for the kind of things that, that that you're both doing. And the reason I say that is because, well, John, in your case, your novel fits inside Frankenstein. I mean, right. Right. Predant, Pride and Prejudice has been over for what, 15 years, but, there is this trip as you mentioned the trip to england the trip to scotland eventually the orkneys uh which is described in frankenstein and you are able to fit basically mary bennett and her story into that that's not a secret history and it's not a prequel It's it's an orthoquill, Is that what it is? That's a good word.
2: I I thought of it as a kind of secret history. You know, the things that uh, Mary Shelley didn't tell you about that happened in the background of Frankenstein or Mm -hmm. they got left out. Or actually another way of putting it is that that Victor left out when he told the story to Walton. Uh, I feel like Victor did not tell the entire truth of what happened. And and, uh, so you're going to get some things here that you, you didn't know about. Uh, um, so, anyway, uh, that really was
1: fun, so. fun for me to do. Oh, actually, well.
2: one of the principles was that I would not violate the plot of Frankenstein in any right. fundamental way. And so uh, it was really interesting to have to fit my story into the spaces of Shelley's. Uh, I hope she doesn't mind that I did that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Dora, by and large, it was, I'm sorry, Don, Jonathan, go ahead. I was just going to say Dora, what you're doing is basically using characters some of which are contemporaneous with your story and some of which really aren't uh i mean the, the whole story of, 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 of Frankenstein's daughter is it's a wonderful set piece within the novel uh, Thank but you. how would you describe what you're doing uh
3: alternative fiction
1: alternative i mean oh, it's not
3: you, alternative history right I don't know. <laughs> it's because I'm I'm doing something different from John and I have to admit yeah. um, I, I haven't gotten a copy of his book yet so I haven't read the book but I read the story that it comes from which is wonderful uh-huh. so I don't know how close I'll have to see how how, how much the novel is like the story um, yeah I don't know I mean I'm I'm doing something different in that I am changing the story but there's a reason for it and we learn at the end Um. Of my first novel, um, and by the way, there's gonna be a third one, just so you know, which oh, is, uh, it's gonna be the last one, they're just three. Um, but we learn why Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein the way she did, um, oh, which cool. did not reveal the whole truth, or at least we hypothesize about it. But I, I did just wholesale change some things, and that that's true in the second novel as well. Um, so I am actually rewriting the stories. Um, hopefully in a way that is clever I hope and words mm-hmm. um, but but I am I'm playing around with all of this stuff and my excuse is that um, that the the original fiction the original monster fiction is playing around with um, literary conventions all over the place right. so so it's I'm in i'm in the tradition even if i'm messing around with it because they must around with it too
2: yeah i've been thinking a lot about this kind of fiction i've done numbers of this sort of thing from the beginning of my career and um you know i i think we're often very apologetic about doing it and and maybe we should be to some degree but i but i don't know uh, uh, it seems to me that we shouldn't you know we're we're creating new things we're not we're not just repeating some old things. And so, uh, I mean, it's a kind of, uh, what is it? Uh, Henry Wessels calls this critical fictions. Uh, Have you, yeah, uh, where, where, uh, you know, your work is in some ways a commentary on the original or stories of this sort or, uh, or the time you're basically using, using material that was created by other people as a way of examining any number of other things, I guess, is is, is what I'm thinking. And it, it seems to me that that this, to some degree, in any way, um, all, all fiction does this. Uh, it, you
1: know, it, it, it's some yeah, it's something that goes on in mainstream fiction as well. I mean, one of the things that have occurred to me in reading both your novels are novels like Gene Reese's The Wide Sargasso Sea, which is a secret history within the story of, 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 of Jane Eyre, uh, or uh, Peter Carey did uh, a novel about. What, what, ha- what happens to Magwitch in, in, in Great Expectations when he is off oh, yeah. in Australia? Yeah. Jack uh, Mags. That, Jack Mags. Yeah, right. He mags, yeah. right. Um, and that strikes me as being completely worthwhile. But as a writer who wants to get, let's say, lots and lots of people reading your books, how do you each deal with the fact that some portion of your readership? actually won't have read Frankenstein or won't have read Rappaccini's Daughter or won't have read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or won't have read Jane Austen. How do you deal with the fact that you're not dealing with a audience of PhDs in literature?
2: Um, Dora, do you want to take that for sure? <laughs> sure. i
3: Sure. I I love your assumption that we want lots and lots of people to read our books, which is is mostly (laughs) true. But I mean, both John and I, in order to do, quite frankly, the the sorts of things we do and the sort of writing we do, have to also um, have a a deep desire to um, tell the stories we want to tell. Because as a writer, if all you want to do is please the public... Um, you're going to be writing a very different kind of story than the sort of thing that he and I do. I mean, I think John and I, just judging from our short stories, we, we write complicated stuff uh-huh. that it, we're constantly taking the risk that people are going to look at it and go, what is this? We have no idea. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, and I, I would love for lots and lots of people to read my um, work. Um, and in fact, most people who read my novel, I would wager, have no idea who Rappuccini's Daughter is. And I've seen some um, Goodreads reviews or Amazon reviews uh-huh. in which people have said, hey, this made me read Hawthorne. And I thought, oh, that's great. That's, that's wonderful. Um, I think the, what you try to do as much as possible is create a complete story and make sure that your characters are alive and the resonances with the original works are extra. They're not the point of the story. The point of the story Uh, is the story you're telling. But they're little bits of pleasure, uh, like a treasure hunt, for the people who are aware of the story. And there are a lot of things I use that people do more or less know. Sherlock Holmes, for example. Um, People more or less know Frankenstein. Um, They kind of know Jekyll and Hyde. You know, hopefully it will make people seek the stories out. But I, I think the... The larger thing we both have to do is to make sure that we're telling complete stories. But that's what you have to do anyway, all the time right. as a novelist.
2: That, that uh, I completely agree with what Dora just said. I, I, uh, I think of these things that you're, you're you're telling a novel. One thing I did also was I, I sort of resuscitated a character from Pride and Prejudice, and that's Mary Bennett, who's the middle sister, who's the yeah. bookish, clueless, musical uh, disappointment, <laughs> the, the plain one. And so uh-huh. I, I, uh, she struck me that she would obviously be a science fiction or fantasy fan if she were alive today. And so, so I, I basically thought about her 13 years later when she's in her early thirties and approaching spinsterhood and what, uh-huh. what kind of person is she now? And, uh, uh, you know, in, in Pride and Prejudice, she's, uh, kind of the butt of the joke most, most of the time, but, uh. But I wanted to, of course, make her a much more uh, fully realized character. So that was fun to, to do that. Uh, I don't know, again, how I think if you felt, feel that Austin's characters are sacred, then, uh, you know, you could take a. a well, I
1: mean, I, I, my, my reaction to it, and I, I, I'm, I'm talking, i talking, I might as well say, John, my reviews coming out, I think, in, in the March issue um, or maybe the February issue. I don't know. Uh, but you had her meet Mary Anning. Uh, this, this wonderful Victorian amateur paleontologist who was who also the subject of a really wonderful novella by Karen Joy Fowler called The Science of Herself. And that's another illusion that I'm guessing most readers aren't going to know that she was a real person.
2: That's true. Yeah, she although she's becoming more famous now, uh she's being sort of rediscovered. Uh right. uh but yeah, that's weird to put a real person in the in the book where it's all fictional people. I and I also have like another I have a little uh I, I think of these as Easter eggs. I have a little uh shout out to uh Austin's novel Persuasion in chapter one mm-hmm. where in the background of what's happening in my book, there's a climactic moment from Persuasion, uh, uh, which is my favorite Austin novel, uh, <laughs> happening in the background. So, I actually have a quote here. This is interesting. I, I, I found this. It's by Stephen Milhauser, and uh-huh. uh, he's sort of talking about this. Uh, let me read it, okay? Uh, it's true – this is Milhauser. It's true that I sometimes make deliberate use of existing stories, though it's also true that I very often don't. Insofar as I do, it is, yes, one way of maintaining a necessary distance for the paradoxical sake of closeness. But I think something else is also at work. When I make use of an existing story, I take pleasure in participating in something beyond myself that is much greater than myself and equal pleasure in striking a variation. I take pleasure, you might say, in acknowledging the past and then sharply departing from it. And there is something to be said for releasing oneself from the obligations of relentless novelty. A certain kind of insistent originality is nothing but the attempt of mediocrity to appear interesting to itself. <laughs> <laughs> so there. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I was going to say, I mean, it struck me re- you know, reading these, these books, that what you've done is you've taken something that's familiar and not quite used it as a Trojan horse or anything, but you have used it to present and discuss something that the original authors never ever would have from their worldview. I mean, in Pride and Prometheus, the entire worldview of the stories is told in a way that you would never have encountered the time. You know, the, I mean, bring Mary Anning in talking about science in that way, giving women that kind of view, very much the same in The Strange Alchemist's Daughter. That must be one of the great values of doing this at all. I would think.
3: I, it, and it's fun, but you're right. Um, there um, you um, yeah. incorporate these historical characters. Sorry, my
0: uh sorry. Yeah.
3: I'm not hearing quite as clearly as I was oh, before. Okay.
0: Yeah, I mean um, sorry. Yeah, sorry.
3: But um you incorporate these historical characters and um, It's in a sense, what you're doing is sort of reviving them. The period I'm writing about, a lot of people don't know the scientific discoveries that were made at the time. They've sort of forgotten. Um, They've often forgotten kind of the weirdness of Victorian science. Uh, And so what you're doing is as you're building the world, you're also kind of educating people. And there's a pleasure in that. The person who pointed this out to me was um, Elizabeth Hand, another amazing writer uh, who talked about the kind of pleasure that people get from learning things and that that is one of the pleasure that your writing can provide for them. Um, and, and so there's, as long as you're weaving it in cleverly, um, you, can, you can tell your reader all of these things that he or she might not know about, for example, Victorian scientific discoveries, that sort of thing, Erasmus Darwin. Um, I also blend in historical characters Um, and most of the time their background. In the second novel, I actually have a very important historical character who appears for quite some time, Um, and there I just had to do a whole lot of research to try and make sure that I was being accurate, (laughs) as (laughs) accurate as possible, uh, in addition to sort of imagining this particular character. Uh, I have a question for John, actually, which is, what was it about Mary? Because you and I are both coming at these novels almost with a bit of an agenda like they are these characters that we like right we're, we're sort of on their side and we're like they didn't get a story how come they didn't get a story yeah. we want to tell their stories
2: well that's a you know i i, I looked at both uh mary and kitty in that book uh, well, for one reason, it was just because they were not—they the, were the only unmarried ones left at the end of Pride and Prejudice. But then, Mary also had always been someone I was interested in because she was the bookish one. She's sort of clueless and and uh, obnoxious in her cluelessness, uh, even though she is trying, for instance, to sympathize with the family because Lydia's run off with Wickham. Uh, you know, she's talking about how she's ruined for life and a woman's virtue is uh, once lost is irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so tedious and, and, uh, annoying that, uh, Lizzie, our heroine is just, you know, can just has to tolerate her. And I was thinking about, you know, there are, there are times in my life where I have been that clueless.
3: Okay
2: <laughs> and so uh i I wondered about you know what would happen if she grew up a little bit and and uh, and also she would have had to have some rather harsh and difficult moments if she were to grow up of realization that the way she behaved was was uh you know embarrassing uh, in retrospect and uh, so that really i made me i wanted i began to think of her as a person rather than just the kind of uh, you know running joke which is sort of what she is in in uh in pride and prejudice not not that i'm mm-hmm. criticizing jane but but uh no that wasn't important uh and yet uh, i i started thinking about her well what kind of person if she if she did become a, a very interesting or tolerable or uh or more more uh, well-rounded person what kind of person would she
1: be
3: although i think in a sense you can criticize jane exactly in that way in that um she this is a way in which she belongs very much to her century and she's not George Eliot. she's not the later Victorian writers who tend to sort of sympathize a lot more with right. every character um for Jane Austen some people really were there to be mocked um and, and she mocks them and she doesn't necessarily give them some sort of inner life that would justify them um And uh, and that's, you know, that makes her brilliant. And it it but it's also um, just an aspect of the fact that she was writing when she was writing. She had the sensibility she had. um, Yeah. Her Mary is not a fully realized person.
2: But, you know, she is, uh, you know, uh, tremendous at uh, deconstructing uh, polite british society of that time i mean these are social satires in some ways like nightmare stories if you (laughs) you don't marry the right person you know uh uh or or you're in a situation where you have to marry somebody and um it's really uh you know it's interesting i mean people have talked about jane Austen a lot about how she's sort of more than one kind of writer combined um but right, I don't think that the, the sort of uh, idea of the fully rounded character or the uh, individual sensibility, uh, you know, uh, is, is is large in, in the kind of fiction that she was writing.
3: I actually have a theory about Austen that explains some of this, which is mm-hmm. that, you know, when she was younger, she wrote gothic fanfic. Um, mm-hmm. So so she was um, writing, <laughs> this is her, you know, you, you read it in her juvenilia, she's writing these sort of mock- gothic novels or gothic stories that are mocking the conventions of the gothic and i think in her um later work what she does is she sort of transmutes it and she takes in the gothic and makes it part of domestic realism and so you do have um this kind of underlying darkness uh in her novels and often people don't see it because they're so witty they seem Mm -hmm. um Frothy uh, and yeah. light, but but there are uh, there's poverty in them. There's war in them. Um, there's re- the real possibility of complete social ostracism, or the reality of complete social ostracism. So they have this really dark edge. Well, I, I, I,
1: say I that, yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, John mentioned that uh, uh, persuasion was your famous novel, favorite novel, and. One of my favorite Austen novels for completely non-literary reasons is Northanger Abbey, which is a critical fiction of itself. I mean, she's taking on the gothic. She's looking at stuff. There was actually a very weird movie of it that didn't seem to get the joke. Uh, But I I think part of what appealed to me about that, was because she had, had absorbed so much of what writers like Anne Radcliffe were doing in sort of Reinvented it in a in a a mildly satirical way. It's
2: uh it's it's very interesting to me in writing the book to have kind of crashed together the sensibilities of Austin and Shelley, which were very different. I was thinking about this just yesterday that if 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 Austin had known Mary Shelley, uh you know, uh if Mary Shelley were a character in an Austin novel, she would Mm -hmm. have been the sister who really screwed up her life completely okay <laughs> yes. she ran off ran off with a married man who had a an infant child uh, by his, his his wife and he runs off she runs off to switzerland with her this you know crazy young poet who's been disowned by his father and uh, and not and the most famous libertine in all of great britain okay uh, uh byron uh you know to some villa and there's there it's just a. Uh, um uh, you know, a disaster. Okay. Uh, uh, she's, she's much worse than Lydia Bennett. I was going to say that
1: because it sounds a little bit
2: like Lydia. (laughs) Yeah, right.
3: But it's, 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 um, it's Mariah Bartram, right? Mariah Bartram from Mansfield Park. uh, That's right. That's the one uh, who probably comes closest because she runs away with, um, Henry Crawford. That's right. Right. And, and she has to, she has to essentially move to a small cottage with aunt Norris and live in exile in perpetuity.
2: That's right, because she's completely ruined her her uh, standing in, in polite society, at least in England. I think they go to Europe. And actually, I was thinking she probably. I'd like to write about her I I think think she had do. a great t- she had a great time in Italy. I'm sure. Okay, she she pondered and off, and she she was all right. Okay, that's my feeling. Okay. John, so John,
3: that that's the next book. Wait, wait, <laughs> who, who was in Italy at the time? because I think you're going to write the story of Mariah Bertram next.
1: Folks, we, 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 we are geeking out now. All right, yeah. Um,
3: no I one's going to understand this, this conversation.
1: <laughs> I want to get back to the question of fantasy and science fiction. There is a way of reading both your novels as science fiction novels, slightly alternative science fiction novels, nevertheless, but, uh, you know, uh, and I guess my question is this. If you accept the science that is described at some length in, in Mary Shelley, for example, and in some ways in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. In other words, if you accept 18th and 19th century science as a given, are your novels actually science fiction novels? Yes.
2: Uh, I would say yes. Uh, um, I actually did a lot of research on what they knew, for instance, in at that time about uh, how how... Babies were made. I mean, sperm and <laughs> eggs, and, and the female reproductive system, and all that stuff. Uh, uh, and and uh, you know, it was pretty. Uh, some of it was was they knew, and most of it, a lot of it, they had terribly wrong. Okay, and so yeah, uh, it's it's very interesting to read that stuff and to think about what you know. The, the the idea that electricity was some kind of fluid, okay, and, yeah. uh, um, you know, they had all these things that were real science of the time, but that, uh, you know, was wrong, and and uh, uh, so I wanted to make my Frankenstein, uh, you know, Victor studied science and of the time, and so he's very familiar right. with all these, these people, and I, I had that conversation where he goes to see an anatomist at Oxford, and that was sort of one of my fun scenes is where I had this anatomist giving all the Theories about preformation versus uh-huh. spontaneous generation and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Uh, it was really kind of fun.
3: Yeah, it, it, it is fun, um, and I um, well, this you know, I didn't do, need to do this for the book because I'd actually done it for my PhD. But I um, uh-huh. had read things like um, Wells's essays on science, in which he's saying, well, what are the possibilities? Could this work? Could this other thing work? And um, he writes somewhere or other that The Island of Dr. Moreau was written so that um, there was a possibility that that kind of creation of the human from the animal was plausible. I mean, he, he's, he's talking about scientific ideas of the day and trying to figure mm. out what is really scientific and what is not. And he doesn't know, right, because they don't know at the time. Um, so, yeah, I think if you accept... Victorian era science. If you accept 19th century science, then it is science fiction, at least in the way that H.G. Wells is science fiction. If, if H.G. Wells is science fiction, then I think my book is science fiction as well. well
1: I, I was going to say, I mean, if, if you talk to Ted Chang, he thinks all of his stories are science fiction, even though they may be based on Babylonian cosmology or fundamentalist cosmology or uh, Jewish mysticism. In other words, he he's writ, writes story after story that are consistent science fiction stories within the worldview that he's using as his premise. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And that makes sense to me,
2: actually. I, I uh, Someone said, I can't, was it Fred Paul said that science fiction is a way of thinking about things. And, and I think that that applies to Ted's work and probably to what Dora and I are doing here. So, um, it, w- it was interesting to me uh, to, uh, I was, I was uh, having to do this research on, on the science of the time. And, um, you know, it made me wonder what, what uh, Mary Shelley knew. And she was, you know, her father was a famous uh, literary intellectual radical. Right. And, she, but she was very up and on, her mother. On, 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 the, on the science. That's true. Her, her mother wrote the vindication of the rights <laughs> of women, a tremendous, uh, important book w- in which she argues that women should be allowed to study science. Uh, so, So I think Mary was, you know, although uh, the science as such, I mean, the word didn't even exist. Uh, Natural philosophy was so connected with other areas of study that these things lapped over a lot. But I think she was very familiar with what was going on at that time.
3: And you have to remember that um, uh, Conan Doyle himself believed in spiritualism. So the 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 um this divide between the fantastic and the scientific wasn't quite where we put it a lot of people believed in spiritualism at the time
1: and they thought of it in a scientific sense in 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 defense of that 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 was that got weirder as doyle got older i guess and lost his son uh, early in his life though he had studied under a great surgeon i guess in edinburgh um who joseph bell was that his name I think. I think uh, so. so he had learned that business of, of, of observing. He basically learned, I guess, the observational technique from Bell's autopsies. There was there's a, there's a biography of Bell published a few years ago. So there was this odd schism there between complete uh, gullibility and complete rationality. Uh, Doyle is a fascinating character to me for that reason.
3: He is. Although the the way that people talked about spiritualism in the Victorian era, they were trying to prove things. So uh, they, they were trying to prove or disprove um, the abilities of certain mediums, etc. So, so the way people were approaching spiritualism was as um, something that you could test, something that you could experiment on. I mean, they were kind of Trying to approach it in this scientific way, and you know, we know in retrospect that it was um, not, (laughs) in fact, a real phenomenon. But but they were approaching it very differently.
1: Yeah, that's true. I I suppose. But um, I I was uh, uh,
2: one of the things that I was consciously threading through my book was the uh, sort of uh, contrary visions of science and religion, and I made uh, Mary pretty religious which surprised me frankly i didn't intend that when i started and Hmm. um and so you know she's uh she's concerned she's she believes very much in god and in providence and all these other things uh and yet uh she also is interested in science and she doesn't see a contradiction although as the story goes on that becomes an issue because of course frankenstein and mary shelley uh also deals with the same sort of issues uh you know is victor's uh Quests to create life from lifeless matter uh, a sacrilege or is it just a bad, uh, you know, judgment of a scientist? Um, um, I think the, the popular visions of Victor have made him, you know, into this kind of uh, almost like they no God is going to swat him down for, for his uh, hubris. But uh, I don't think Mary necessarily saw him in that way at all. Well,
1: um, so, a, a question that relates since we're on the bicentennial – do both of you think that – do you agree with Brian Aldous's contention that Frankenstein was the first science fiction novel?
2: I think uh, uh, that's a that's, – I, when I first heard that, I was surprised by it, of course, because most people didn't see her as the, the parent of science fiction. They saw Verne right. and Wells at the, when I was growing up, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems to me that, that he has a good argument. And uh, the, the thing that I would say about it is maybe the people writing for – you know amazing stories and astounding in the in the twenties and thirties would never have thought about Frankenstein as their their uh ancestor but uh Frankenstein through the culture through its influence had had uh, had deeply uh uh affected everything that they they took in to doing their writing so over and over you saw frankenstein stories uh you know the same same uh, dynamic of the uh, overreacher uh pursuing some scientific goal and uh, achieving it and having to suffer the consequences Uh, uh that sort of thing happened over and over again in in uh in science fiction stories. And I think that that's because Mary touched on something that is almost like an archetypal myth. Well, I think she probably was using things like, the, of course, Prometheus, the Prometheus myth uh-huh. or, or the Faust story, uh, or, uh, the paradise law story, of uh, Adam and, uh, Satan both seeking, um, wisdom and power. So, so I think that, you know, that's one reason this story has stuck with us is that it, it embodies certain one way of thinking about, the way we fit in the universe
1: Uh, i I agree Uh, dora
3: i think she's in dialogue with the science of her day and that's Uh. the sense in which it is a science fiction story um i you know i I, have seen various arguments as to what early science fiction looks like there's actually a student of mine who wrote a paper recently on the golden age of arabic science uh uh, and there are stories written during that era that that also addressed science in various ways and so he's making an argument for including uh some of that material which i thought was fascinating um but i think if you're talking about european texts then yeah i think you have an excellent argument that um that this is the first science fiction story i mean i think it's as much science fiction as what wells was writing
1: i i've gotten my my argument just uh fit in a parenthetical thing, because we've seen a lot of things. Uh, people say this is a nonsense kind of thing, that Kepler had written science fiction, that Lucian of Somisata had, Somisata had written science fiction. Uh, there's recently a book by John Crowley, a sort of modern retelling of uh, Rosenkreutz's The Chemical Wedding from the 15th Century, which he says looks like science fiction. My ag- argument is that in, no- in, in in the novel itself, in Frankenstein, he specifically... Rejects supernatural explanations. He rejects alchemy. Uh, in other words, this is the first novel I can think of that doesn't just simply deal with journeys to the moon or, 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 or magical creatures created through some kind of science, but specifically, uh, during his education, during Victor's education, he decides that experimental science is superior to received Aristotelian kind of wisdom. And that, to me, is the first example of modern science fictional thinking where you're saying, okay, rational examination is superior to received wisdom, even if the received wisdom goes all the way back to Aristotle.
3: And the book (laughs) itself is... Uh, an examination of the consequences. I mean, this is how it's science fiction rather than science, right? It, mm. It's a, an imaginative examination of the consequences of rejecting supernatural explanations. Yes. Um, and so it's, I mean, it, it, it. you sort of have to have the invention of the concept of science before you can have science fiction. Exactly. And I think Shelley is writing right at the point where you have the concept of science in europe being invented um and and, and in that sense you know it's yeah, the I, first fiction novel i
2: agree that, that makes that makes sense so what gary said i i completely agree with i think that uh um you know mary is a a I mean, this is a story that consciously uh, is aware of an enterprise of you know, natural philosophy that stands in opposition to other ways of, of perceiving the universe. And, and not only that, that it perceives that by means of this study, one might gain a power over uh, the natural world uh, that would be tempting. And so uh, it seems to me that that she's very much conscious. Of, well, that's why she called it a modern Prometheus. It's not a supernatural tale. It's, it's a modern right. tale. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think she really, uh, deserves, I mean, I, I'm, I always start my science fiction class with, with Frankenstein. Uh, it seems to me that that, that's where it belongs.
1: I have to say one thing that maybe both of you know this, because I've, I've never actually read a biography of, of Mary Shelley. How did she know all this stuff by the time she was 18? That astonishes me. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, you know, some of the, his, her father knew everybody in London uh, intellectual society. And so people like Humphrey Davy would have come over for supper at their house. Okay. You know, who was like the genius chemist of that, that era, uh, you know, um, and also experimented with electricity. Uh, He invented a, uh, uh, an arc light. Okay. Uh, And so uh, it seems to me that, that uh, she must've been exposed to these things uh, in a way that I think, Almost no young women in England at that time could possibly have encountered.
1: <laughs> right, but she was yeah, everything. It was, a, everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. It was in a really unusual upbringing and a really unusual situation. I mean, her parents were very well known, kind of notorious and scandalous, mm-hmm. uh, and got in trouble because of their politics. Um, I mean, obviously, her mother died when she was very young, uh, and she was deeply influenced by the example of her mother. She read her mother's work. Um But but she grew up in this intellectual milieu. And, you know, back then, what was the the education that you received as someone in that position? She wasn't going to school. She was reading books. She was listening to her father's conversation, to his friend's conversation. Uh It's just it's a very different education. And and what you see around this time is that um, you have some people who have access to that kind of education. Um, becoming very, very well educated in a way that it's even difficult for us to understand. I mean, we sort of go to school and we get this very general education, um, but it's it's not the um, sort of focused, <laughs> uh, intense right. um, education. Or individualized, that, 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 yeah. Individualized, yeah. Just the the you know. Um, basically having free run of a library and having all of your days to go um, and and read rather than going to soccer practice. It's a very uh, different way of living.
2: Of mm-hmm. course, she didn't get along with her stepmother very well, and I think they, that she was banished from the house uh, for periods of time off to live with relatives uh, in Scotland, yeah. things like that. So, I mean, I mean, she's an interesting person. I, I, you know, I, I actually should know more about her life, which I but don't. But
3: also, you know, they were having conversations about this stuff. I mean, she was there in Switzerland with Byron and Polidori and Shelley, yeah. And they were all talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the current topic of conversation.
1: Right. Be actually, oh, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't... No, that's all right. No. no, no. Who was the okay trivia question? Who was the first person to portray Mary Shelley in the movies?
2: Uh, Elsa Lanchester. You got it. Okay,
1: <laughs> Bri- Bride of Frankenstein was the first movie to recount the story of how Frankenstein was written in the sort of prologue and epilogue.
3: I'm glad John knew because I have no idea. I had no so idea. Now so I got know.
2: To, She got to play both Mary Shelley and the Bride uh,
1: Frankenstein. Exactly. That. Yeah, that's yeah.
3: fascinating.
1: It was great, yeah. and then later Natasha Richardson was in Gothic, and I forgot who played her in Brian and the Brian Aldis thing. Uh, Frankenstein.
2: Oh, uh, uh, Frankenstein Bound. I've I've never seen that. So. Oh.
0: Um, I'm curious. With both of you, did it help when it came to approaching you know the, the novels? With some, was there value in having investigated these ideas as short fiction in the first instance? Yes. What did it give you? Uh, how to do think? you yeah, how did you so, do yours?
3: Yeah. Well, I don't. I I don't think I would have dared write the novel without having written the short story first. And actually, I got a really good response to the short story. A lot of people liked it. It was reprinted, um, and that's what made me think, oh, maybe there is value here. Maybe there's a greater story to be told. Um, and it also gave me a little more courage. the The short story had been very experimental, metafictional, and it made me think, okay, how do I write the novel that way, or how do I at least incorporate some of that in the novel? Um, Yeah, I mean, I I think for me, it was absolutely crucial to have written the short story first. That really was the spark that, um, you know, created the conflagration. (laughs)
2: It's clever the way you had the characters in the present as the story is being written down, comment upon the story they break into the story period yeah i
1: like that a lot
2: uh, that was uh, that was nicely done i thought uh,
3: thank you i'm glad you all like it um there are people who definitely don't like it and i understand uh-huh. that and it was a risk i took but but for me the um novel didn't come alive until the characters started fighting with each other until they started quarreling
2: mm-hmm. i it's i uh go ahead go i was going to say that that my uh take on this Uh, was that uh, sorry, I'm drawing a a blank now. Well, Uh, what I was
1: going to say, go ahead. You got it? (laughs) No, go ahead. (laughs) Okay, well, my my point was that uh, that, that's that's very metafictional, but one of the things that's interesting about that is that you've got unreliable narrators on top of unreliable narrators. You've got one unreliable narrator interrupting another telling her story and commenting on it, and and, John, in your case, oh, this is one of the things that interested me about Pride and Prometheus, is that you have first-person narrations from Victor, who's not entirely trustworthy, and from the, the creature, who's maybe a little bit more trustworthy, but maybe not. But then the, the chapters that deal with Mary are all in the third person.
2: Right. That was, a, that was an experiment there. I, I wasn't sure that was going to work, but uh, I, I wanted to have uh, the Mary chapters be written more like Pride and Prejudice and have the the Frankenstein chapters written more like Frankenstein. So, you know, Victor okay. and, and uh, the creature tell their own story in uh, Frankenstein, whereas uh, Jane Austen's strictly third-person uh, uh, point of view. And so I, I started with that as a premise I wanted to follow through. Uh, one thing that, that I was going to say about this was that, uh, and then what, Doris said, I, um, I wrote the story and I brought it to Sycamore Hill and, and Karen Fowler was there and she read it and really liked yeah. it. And she said, she said, this is in 2006 or 2007. She said, you know, you should make a novel out of this. And I said, no, I don't think there's a novel in this. This is, I've only got a short uh, mm-hmm. novel out here. And so I yeah. published it. It did very well, won the Nebula award, you know, won the Shirley Jackson award. So people liked it, but I, I didn't think there was a novel. And then, you know, eight years later, Um, I thought about it some more and I realized, well, no, this, what I told was only part of the story. And so the way I went from the novelette to the novel is that the novel's 21 chapters, Um, the novelette essentially is chapters six through 10 of the, of the book. There's a, you know, so other bits of the novelette sort of get retold in other places, but basically that those, uh, uh, five chapters, uh, Represent everything that's covered in the in the novelette, and then and then the rest of the book uh, starts. It starts earlier and it goes later, and it adds the points of view of Victor and the creature. and And it it to me that made it more. I really didn't want to just pad out uh, a novelette. It just it wouldn't that. That's why I never thought there was a novel in it. I just couldn't just pad a story a novelette out. Yeah, a novel, right. that doesn't make any sense. No. So uh, so I had to reinvent the story and carry it further, which was. Frankly, I I end up. I think the novel's much better than the novel. So Uh I don't know how other other people will feel about it, but I I feel like I I ended up. If you never read the story and you just read the novel, I don't know if you'll even. I hope you won't be even to know there know there was a story. So.
3: Hey John, I think um, you said that it's twenty one chapters, right? So is mine.
2: Yeah. You know, I saw that. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's
3: weird. (laughs) (laughs) That (laughs) That means something.
2: Well, I was wondering. I was wondering, Dora, with your book, how you came to come up with your plot line. Oh, hello.
3: How I came hello. up with a plot line?
2: Yeah, I mean, how you got to fit all those characters together. And, uh, you know, I was just – its in every other chapter, there's some new thing coming in that strikes me as like, whoa, how did she – she must have had a huge chart on her wall or something. Where <laughs> was, you know? I
3: don't think – I didn't have a chart. Um, I had something. I'm not sure what I had. This this novel took me two years to write, partly because I started it when I was um, writing my PhD dissertation, which is not a good idea. Um, uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, it took a while. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the novel really is written um, to move quickly. And I was thinking about this when you were talking about the formal aspects of your novel. My initial thought um which i stuck to was that if you're writing a a novel about monsters and i think i said this the last time i was talking to uh, jonathan (laughs) and gary um if you're writing a novel about monsters it has to be formally monstrous and and the original novels were i mean frankenstein is monstrous as a novel
2: it's formally
3: monstrous in terms of the nested narratives uh Dracula you don't know who is telling you the truth in Dracula and Dracula is this mass of different kinds of um, uh, uh, of different kinds of um, you know documents really yeah exactly um, transcripts well, and newspaper articles etc every single every single monster text that i have studied is in some way monstrous like for example it's a stitched together compilation of other kinds of texts um, right. So I think in, in order to be true to the tradition, you have to do that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I learned how to plot with this novel. And then there's a uh, what I hope is a fairly intricate plot in the second novel. Um, and I, I really like intricate plots. But that comes from <laughs> having read a lot of murder mysteries um, and plotting, hopefully trying to plot the way that... Um, that, that those are put together
1: right right
3: in which you have a lot of clues and then sometimes you realize that um, what you thought was happening isn't actually what's happening and there are a lot of reversals and then um, at the end everything starts to fit together and you go oh that's what's <laughs> been happening all this time
2: if you make that work that's a great that's a great it's tricky to do all that
3: yeah. it is really tricky to do and and you know it, it's One of the wonderful things about writing novels and also the maddening things about writing novels is that you kind of learn how to write each one as you're writing it and you kind of hope you learned that particular lesson. You hope it worked (laughs) and then you get to the next one and it's different. You're like, gosh, I hope I learn how to write this one by the time I finish it.
2: (laughs) This one was so, so completely different from The Moon and the Other. It was like I was on another planet. I know. i guess i was on another planet <laughs> you
3: were on another planet I wonder hey john it was, it was, i'm curious about something um did you did you go to england did you do research in on location
2: i've been to england and i've been to some of the places that are in the book but there are places that are in the book that i have never been to and so uh i guess sort of sort of is the answer uh uh, but I did not I did not travel to England specifically for the purposes of this book, no, which I wish I had done at some point. So I, I, my British readers, I hope, will forgive me uh, for any errors I've made. Well, Dora, did you?
3: Yeah, I had to because um, things happen in London specifically, and so you have people um, walking particular streets, and so I needed to – do things like, uh, figure out which streets things were going to happen on. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so sometimes when I was writing it, um, I was looking at two maps at the same time. I was looking at a modern map of London, seeing where I had gone and then also mapping that onto, um, a, a map of London from the 1880s, 1890s, uh, figuring out like which streets were there at the time. Um, um, and and also, um, I walked certain distances to figure out how long things would take. So I mean, uh-huh. I I tried to make, wow, I tried to make this unrealistic novel as realistic as I could to kind of build the world. And I think it yeah. helps, you know, just to see the textures of things. I had never been to England though, so I had a disadvantage that John did not have at the beginning. And now I'm writing the third one, which also takes place um, in England after all the trips abroad i did go by the way to vienna and budapest as well for the second one <laughs> um but uh now i'm back in england and i haven't been to england for three years so I, I have to write this novel and then i have to actually go back to england this summer and just try and check and make sure that i didn't make any major mistakes that sounds
0: like a terrible burden it's an awful thing this novel I know, writing you're
3: doing <laughs> oh, it's actually... sacrifices we make really, as <laughs> writer.
2: actually uh when i was reading your book uh It struck me, it seemed to me, that you had a real grasp of the geography of London. Not that I know the geography of London, but it seemed to me that you, the the way I just had confidence that you knew what you were talking about when they went from one neighborhood to another, things like that. So it pleases me to know that you did all that work. Uh,
3: Good. Well, you know, I wanted it to be there the way that, A Sherlock Holmes story does it, which is that nobody in Sherlock Holmes says then Soho, which was right next to Marlebon, nobody says anything like that. They just say, and then we took a cab to, you know, so and so train station, and it's just there as background. And that's I wanted it just to be there as background.
2: I I I found myself a a map of London from 1800 that I used, but Uh uh, as I say, I didn't unfortunately couldn't visit London in 1800.
1: Once when I was in London, I took a a, a bunch of walks with Judith Clute, who at the time was doing the original London walks and the Jack the Ripper walk, and uh, and, and you, you could go to Baker Street. Of course, there is no two twenty one B, but Baker Street is there, and you can figure out where it would have been. And it was very interesting because these were long walks that you got a real sense of of the geography of what it must have been like. And Judith did research as as we say, John, going back to maps from the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties, and it was. Absolutely fascinating to go on the, for example, the Jack the Ripper walk and find out okay, the first murder occurred here, but it occurred 30 feet below us because we're sitting in a British telecom parking garage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: One of my it, favorite uh, moments in London was um, I was just walking down the street and I looked at this building and I saw this old, faded sign that had been um, painted on the brick wall. And it was oh. for the Aerated Bread Company, which <laughs> is mentioned in Dracula. And it's this um, cafe, the Aerated Bread, Bread Company. It was like a chain almost. There, they were cafes all over the place. And uh-huh. they were wonderful because they didn't serve alcohol and so women could go there. Um, so this was this new part of being a liberated female. <laughs> you could get something at the Aerated Bread Company. And it was this little sign of the left over from the 1800s but um one thing that i i was looking at um john's story again today and i was noticing that he um knows all the names of the carriages i saw a gig in there and i was like you did the same research i did didn't you you had yeah, to research yeah. the carriages and how many people can sit in the carriages and what exactly it's like to get into these carriages
2: you know that every Jane Austen fan on the planet is going to be looking over your work with a microscope. So, uh, I'm, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure I've, I'm uh, guilty of some errors there as well. But it, it's it's cool, actually. But also, they're a tremendous resource. Uh, you know, the Jane Austen Society of North America, those folks, they work hard.
1: <laughs> uh, so and, and
3: to... yeah, it's the same concern with Sherlock Holmes fans.
2: Oh, my God. Yes. They know everything. Yeah, you, you said you put your head in the lion's mouth there, dear. I, I think I know, <laughs>
3: you know, we're writing these novels that are kind of scary to write. But I think, it. you know, John and I are both those kinds of writers. That's why I was remarking on what Gary had said earlier about us trying to get, you know, large audiences it's like, yeah, but maybe we should have written different things. if that's what we were really going for. <laughs>
2: Well, I have to say, I think this one of mine is probably the it's it's a fun read in, in my uh, if a Kessel story can be a fun read. I don't know. It's it's a gothic novel. It's got all kinds of hugger mugger,
1: uh-huh.
2: you know, close escapes and terrible coincidences and and melodramatic <laughs> moments. At least that was what I was going for.
3: Isn't that fun? Isn't it great? Yeah, it is,
1: to be it to is, is fun,
2: actually. You know, it is after being a, such a literary
1: uh, tool oh, for so thing. much of my career. It's, It's a real shift. I should say it's a real shift from the moon and the other. But on the other hand, you go all the way back to corrupting Dr. Nice. You were having a lot of fun back then.
2: That's true. Uh, That
1: was my uh,
2: screwball comedy movie. So, uh, yeah, you know, I I think one of the things about science fiction writers and fantasy writers is that we have a one foot firmly planted in the popular culture. And I think that's a very good thing. So I I really uh, love those kinds of stories. So uh, it was fun to, to, and then I had, you know, I was working in Mary Shelley's world. And so Uh I had to, uh, many things were given to me that I, that I uh, uh, just used. And so, so uh, that was also interesting too. Uh, When, when I was writing it, I, you know, I had the plot for what happens to Mary is really made up, but uh, it fits within the plot of what Victor and the creature do. And But there's some big spaces in there that aren't explained. One of the things that it hit me as I was writing this is how little – it's explained in Frankenstein, how did the creature get from Switzerland to the Orkney Islands, okay, <laughs> with no resources, no friends. He can't appear in public without causing a, a, a panic. Uh, he has no money. I mean, what,
1: what did he do? And so that was interesting for me to try to make that as plausible as I could make it. We haven't talked about it yet, but one of the things that, uh, since we're talking about the bicentennial, that fascinates me is there have been lots of Frankenstein novels, and there was there was a weird novel by Theodore Roethke called The Memoirs of Elizabeth Frankenstein. But one of my favorites is Michael Bishop's Brittle Innings, which is a baseball Ooh, Frankenstein paper. novel. Uh, absolutely brilliant. And he had the same problem. He had how did Franken how would Frankenstein get from the Arctic wastes? To a Georgia minor league football team, baseball <laughs> team in the 1940s, and he made it make sense. Yes,
2: that's actually my favorite Michael Bishop novel. That is a terrific novel. I, more a, people should read that book. Yeah, yeah, that's a great
0: book. couldn't agree more.
2: Uh, <laughs> I'm actually curious
0: for both of you just to sort of begin to wind, wind this up because we've actually gone through our hour by a little ways First of all, um, for both of you your books both have a similar origin in the world and now they have a similar outcome How did you both end up uh, getting to the publisher that you have and the editors I presume you have because I presume you share an editor I don't know I mean, We don't, Dora, you we have a,
3: different editors at yeah,
0: the same publishing house
2: Same publisher both books, but different we, editors
1: You're both Saga.
2: Were right.
3: at Saga Press. Yeah. Uh, John's editor is Joe Monty and mine is Nava Wolf.
2: And the way I hooked up with Joe Monty was that, uh, I had written and finished, uh, the moon and the other. And, uh, I was contemplating writing this book. I was already starting to do some stuff and, and, uh, and also another book. And, um, uh, I went to my agent and he, I told him about all the projects I his work. He asked me and I said, well, I've got this one done and I'm thinking about these other two. And he sold two of them. He sold The Moon and the Other and uh, The Frankenstein Story without really, I mean, I guess I knew he was going to pitch it, but I didn't <laughs> think it was going to happen. And so what happened was I sold the book without having written it yet. And so I had to write it, uh, which was actually a wonderfully way to, it took me eight years to write The Moon and the Other. It took me a year to write. Uh, Pride and Prometheus, so uh, I don't know what that
1: means.
0: Well, I guess that's, that's the obvious thing, too. With, um, you know, Pride and Prejudice or Pride and Prometheus you're out in just two weeks, do you have a feeling for what's next for you?
2: Uh, I'm sort of floundering around a little bit. I have this other idea that I thought might be a novel, but it, now it doesn't look like it. Probably a novella. And I think that's the most likely thing I'll work on. Uh, but, you know, I'm sort of... Uh, trying to figure this out, I've recently gone into phased retirement from the university, and so I have more time.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: uh, But what exactly I'll put my time to is a little bit... <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm doing that thing that people do when they retire, is that they have to figure out, okay, so what do I do now? <laughs> is, it, uh, is, it, is it gardening or, or chess? Write more books. <laughs> yeah. Write more uh, books.
0: Yeah. And speaking of writing what, what, more books what, what, for you, Dora, it's more of the Athena Club.
2: Well,
3: for right now, um, my story is very much like John's in that <laughs> you're like, how did you get these books to these publishers? And our stories are both, well, we have these agents and they sold them to the publisher. <laughs> it's, it's like the typical writer story, basically. Yeah, my agent, Barry, um, shopped the book around and um, actually he originally sent it to Joe and Joe said, oh, I really love it. And then he came back. <laughs> several weeks later, I think, and said, okay, so I really love this book. But Nava loves it even more, and she wants it. <laughs> <So> <laughs> that that was how Nava ended up with it. Um, and uh, she really liked it. And it was a two book deal. So I had the first book written, and uh, the second book to be written. Um, I had a terrible time with the second book, actually, because I got to 120 words on it. And I panicked. I was like, I'm at 120 words, and I've still got so much of the story to tell. This book is going to be too long. I don't know what to do. Um, so, thousand
1: 120,000
3: 120, words. Right? Sorry,
1: my, my mind is automatically at novel. <laughs> if you, you were now. stuck at 120 words, you're no. at
3: 120,000. Sorry, <laughs> 120,000 words, which was the length of the first book, and I wasn't done and I kept thinking okay maybe it's only going to be 140,000 maybe it's only going to be 160,000 and it it has clocking in at 220
1: holy oh, cow
3: i know <laughs> it's going to be 700 pages um but uh but yeah but it's um you know and i had a long talk with my editor saying is this two books is this one book she said look it's one book just write it um and so I wrote it. So I finally finished it um, after a lot of heartrending and uh, uh, heartache and uh, tears and, you know, deciding that I had made a mistake trying to be a writer because clearly I couldn't <laughs> do it. Um, the, the normal <laughs> thing that happens when you're trying to finish a book, uh, in other words. And uh, so, so I got that done um, and turned that in. And then Barry texted me and said they want a third one, uh, and so Ooh. we signed the contract for the third book. And the third book we had talked about as the the last one, and it's written as the last one. So mm. the three together are really do form a kind of cohesive unit. Um, so after that, I am actually working on a um, a, <laughs> a fairy tale collection. Which is going to be uh, fairy tale short stories and poems, so yeah. that's the next thing, and that's almost done simply because a lot of it is reprints. Um, and uh, and then I am working on a project for Gary, which he knows all about.
1: Yes, <laughs> it
3: is an academic book on Ursula Le Guin for University of Illinois Press that is part Wonderful. of the um, Modern Masters of Science Fiction collection. So. That is actually, that's going to be the next project. And then after that, I'm like, John, I've got a whole bunch of stuff lined up. Wow. And then after that, what I would really like to do, uh, and I've told everyone about this, like my agent, editor, et cetera, is um, there's a story of mine written uh, some time ago. I think it was, it was nominated for something uh, called Pip and mm-hmm. the Fairies.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I know the story well, yeah. And, yes,
3: I, know um, <laughs> and I want Boy. to write the novel version of that.
0: Wonderful. I can't wait. You're
2: going well, to be a busy girl for a while.
0: You are going to be busy. But with that, thank you both for joining us. Uh, we should make it very clear to anybody listening, if it's not, that, first of all, Pride and Prometheus by John Kessel will be out in about two and a half weeks from Saga Press. is available from all good stores, bookstores near you. The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter by Theodore Goss is already... Out there in the world for you to read and enjoy at the moment, and uh, European Travel for the Monstrous Gentlewoman, the second of the Athena uh, Club books, will be due out, I think, in July. So you should keep an eye out for both of those. And I'm particularly pl- happy that towards the end of our conversation, you both did mention, re- you know, respectively, that the books you've written actually are enormous fun to read. We've had a moderately academic conversation about two enormously <laughs> fun books. So for people who can actually go and buy these, if you're thinking, oh, God, I don't want an academic treatise about the history of monstrous Catholic literature, dear God in heaven, that's not what you're going to get. They're very different, wonderful, delightful, timely books. So thank you, Dora, for joining us. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you again.
3: Thank you. It's always lovely.
0: And thank you, John, for joining us again. It's been a great pleasure. Look forward to talking to you again.
2: It's uh, been my pleasure. So uh, maybe I'll see you all or maybe at ICFA, huh, some of you? I'll,
1: uh, I'll be I'll, there. I'll, I'll see the two of you at ICFA, the International Conference of the Fantastic. Yeah. We have to get Jonathan there one of these days. but we'll work on One of these days. <laughs> right. it, came, it came
0: so close this year. But, but maybe maybe San Jose or uh, for Worldcon or maybe at World Fantasy down the track this year, we'll see. All
2: right. Very good.
1: Thanks again.
0: Thank you very, Bye, very much.
1: Bye, thank you. Thank okay, you. goodbye, and until next week, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.